Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Glad that you are here. Our society and our culture has a bit of an obsession with end times things, the end of the world. Sometimes it feels like every new TV show and every movie is like some picture of a dystopian future where we are fighting aliens (laughs) or zombies. What's scarier, aliens or zombies? Uh, Aliens, zombies, or each other, or some combination of the three. Um, And I think even in the Christian community, there is a great interest in the end of the world. In fact, uh, I've learned that if you'll survey people in church as to like, what book of the Bible would you most like me to preach through? Uh, The answer, the winner would be the book of Revelation. Christians are just really kind of interested and fascinated with how's this all going to end. In the chapter that we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 13, Jesus is talking about future events. And he's talking about things that involve the end of the world. Um, He's talking about one futuristic event that actually has already happened. He talks about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. But he also is talking about his return, the second coming of Christ, an event that is still in the future, an event that is still before us. Now, when we talk about the return of Jesus, the second coming of Christ, sometimes it's referred to as our blessed hope. When we talk about it, it needs to be said up front that Christians agree on a couple things and disagree on everything else. Christians agree that Jesus will return, uh, that he will return, and because it was prophesied in the Old Testament, because Jesus himself said that he would return, because at his ascension, the angel said, just as you saw him go, he will return. His return is referenced repeatedly in New Testament writings, and actually the final verse of all of the Bible is a prayer for Jesus to come quickly. And some days I pray that prayer, Jesus, come when it's 95 degrees and humid in, in Syracuse, Jesus, come quickly, right? Anyone feel that way this week? So Christians agree Jesus will return. They also tend to agree that when he returns, he will finally and fully establish his kingdom which means his reign and his rule over every corner of creation will be fully restored in every possible way, all right? So they agree, Christians agree he's returning. Christians agree that when he returns, he's gonna establish his kingdom, but everything else Christians pretty much disagree on. There's plenty of discussion and debate. This may be a real area of interest for you um, about how Jesus will return, when he will return, but most of the, 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 most of the debate actually centers around what are the sequence of events that will happen before he returns and what are the sequence of events that will happen after he returns. And what we're going to see in the passage and in the parable this morning is that when Jesus talked about the end of the world, he actually kind of frustratingly doesn't answer those questions. Instead, he has two primary interests. And his first interest is to inform us and make it very clear that no one can predict when he will return. No one knows the time. So listen, if you ever come across a preacher in person or a preacher online who is trying to predict the day that Jesus will return, run in the opposite direction because Jesus says no one knows. In fact, Jesus said, because of my incarnation, which means because he wrapped himself in flesh and sort of embraced his humanity, he even didn't know when he walked the earth when he would return someday. He knows now, but when he said this, he even was limited by his own choosing. So number one, Jesus wants us to know no one knows the time. Doesn't mean you can't know the seasons, but I will say this. Every generation since Jesus ascended to heaven thought they were the generation. 
every single generation. So you may feel that way, and if you do, great, hold on to that, but just know that everyone else has also. So we don't know when. But the second thing that Jesus does here in Mark 13 is that he instructs us that there's actually something way more worth our energy, attention, and time than debating about how the world's going to end. And it actually has to do with how do we live our lives right here and now. And so here's the big idea this morning that I really want you to grab hold of. The promise of Jesus' return was given to us not so that we can argue with each other about its details, but so that we can encourage each other with its certainty. Is that good? The promise of Jesus' return was given not so that we can argue with each other about its details, but so that we can encourage each other with its certainty. So let's look at this, what Jesus says in Mark 13, beginning in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away. Now, when Jesus says that, some people believe that means that literally the heavens and the earth as we know them will pass away, and quantitatively they will be new someday. Other Christians interpret that to mean heaven and earth as you currently know it will pass away, and everything will be qualitatively made new. Doesn't really matter which one you believe, but those are two different beliefs. Either way, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, Jesus saying, what I say, my promises and my truth will never pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, now Jesus is talking specifically about when he returns, his second coming, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard and keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And here's the parable we're going to look at together. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves his home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. The doorkeeper was a very important position. He held the keys of the master. He was responsible for who came in and out. And he also had leadership over the other servants. Great prestige, but great responsibility. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. It could be the evening, it could be at midnight, it could be at the rooster crows, or in the morning. Those four times represented the different shifts of night watch in which the servants would switch positions. Verse 36, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. So what Jesus said to the audience there that day, he says to us this morning, two simple words, stay awake. Stay awake. All right. So there's three things from this parable that we learn about Jesus' return, and I want to frame it this way, prepare you. The first one is controversial, okay? Some of you already are more interested than you were two seconds ago. You're like, you love controversy. The first one is a little controversial. The second one is confrontational, and the third one is comforting. All right, so let's work through the story together. The first thing, the controversial truth here, and it won't feel that way at first, but you'll see why it is, is that Jesus will return to his own, to his own. Um, I don't know what it is about children, but it feels to me like every child, their first two words are no and mine, right? No, I'm mine. I know yes and Dada and Mama and Disney are in there somewhere too, but it's mostly no and mine. And you don't actually have to teach a kid to be selfish. <laughs> you don't have to teach, I didn't have to teach any of my daughters to, to be unwilling to share their toys 
when they were little. It's just in them, right? The scripture's called our sin nature. But that, that, that possession, that mindness, that it belongs to me. And, and the truth is, is that doesn't go away. We actually go through the rest of our lives looking at lots of things, including ourselves, and saying, mine. But what's so challenging about this passage is it makes it clear that Jesus is returning for what is his, his own. When Jesus returns, he's coming for his own. He has a claim on everything. It all belongs to him. And in the story, the, 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 the possessive pronoun his is used often to describe that these things belong to the master, his house, his servants, his work. He's the master of the house. Everything belongs to Jesus because everything is from Jesus. And Paul in Colossians chapter 1, and these beautiful verses, it was a hymn that the early church actually would have sung, says this, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus made God visible to us. He's the firstborn of all creation, which does not mean that Jesus came after God the Father. It simply means that Jesus has the privileges that the firstborn would have in that society at that time. Verse 16, for by Jesus, listen to this, all things were created. There is nothing that we see or experience that doesn't come from Jesus. All things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. So it's not just the things that we see in creation that come from Jesus, but it's the invisible things, the things that we experience, the emotions that we feel, the people that we are, come through Christ. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, speaking of Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I, I love that last phrase. You ever feel like you can't hold things together? <laughs> you can't hold your life together. You can't hold your family together. You can't even hold sort of your own self together. But in Christ, all things hold together. And so Paul, in this beautiful Christological hymn, is making it clear that Jesus is the source of all things. And what this means for you and I is that we are not owners of anything. We are loanees. Everything that we have is on loan. We've been given our time. Every breath that we take is a gift on loan given to us by Jesus. Our talents, our gifts, we don't give ourselves our gifts. Yes, we develop them and we work on them, but we don't give them to ourselves. Our resources, our minds, our souls, our spirits, and our bodies, these are all gifts from God. And so what this means, and this is why it's maybe a little controversial, is it means this, that Jesus has something to say about the way that we use those things. In fact, I would say that Jesus has everything to say about how we steward his gifts. Our time, talent, and treasures are not just to be spent, they're to be invested. And I have a, I have a person who helps me invest. You know, some of you probably invest too for your future, your retirement, whatever. And, and, but when I'm talking with the individual that helps me invest, I make the decisions and this person, they execute the decisions that I make. So if I say I want to be very aggressive with my investment, then, then they will, they'll be aggressive because it's my investment. If I say I want to be very conservative with it, then they'll be very conservative. I want to pull some money out. I want to move money here. They're executing it for me, but it's my stuff that they're investing on my behalf. And it's the same way if everything belongs to Jesus, then everything that we're investing is being done on his behalf. So he gets to say. He gets to say how we use these things. Our minds... 
are to be transformed. The Bible talks about that we should have the mind of Christ, that, that, that our mind should belong to Christ, that our lives themselves are to be conformed, that we, are, we were created in God's image, and in being created in his image, then we're supposed to bear his image well. And then we see Jesus Christ after he... <coughs> dies and is buried and resurrected, we see him walking around in a physical body. For 40 days, he interacted with people before his ascension. Jesus was not just a spirit floating around. He was not Casper the ghost, just kind of, ooh, and showing up. He showed up as a physical body. It says in the scriptures that he ate fish on a beach. So he was eating food still in his resurrected physical body. What does that mean? It means this. Your eternal future in heaven is not a disembodied one. (laughs) Don't envision yourself just kind of floating around for eternity. You're going to have a body. I'm going to have a body, hopefully better than this one. But I'm going to have a body. You're going to have a body, a resurrected body. What does that mean? What's the implication of that? The implication of that in the Christian worldview is that our bodies are tremendously sacred. Christianity has a very high view of the sacredness of our physical bodies. And so even that belongs to the Lord. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And in the New Testament, every time Paul talks about the temple of the Holy Spirit, every other time, as far as I know, when Paul uses the pronoun you, he uses the plural form of it. He says, don't you are all the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here he's narrowing in. He's very singular. He wants everyone to know that you individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. And then he says this, and here's where all the controversy kind of comes. This simple five-word phrase, you are not your own. I mean, that is one of the most controversial things that you could say today to people, that you have a responsibility to a truth, a standard, a God beyond yourself. You are not your own. Sounds like a pretty harsh thing to say, but then look what he goes on to say. Why? Because you were bought with a price. Jesus paid the ultimate price for you. It doesn't mean you don't, doesn't mean you lose your individualism. It doesn't mean you have to sacrifice the way God created you, but it does mean that we answer for the way that we steward the gifts that he has given us. So glorify God in your body. Now this is, I think this is controversial. Maybe it doesn't feel that way to you, but in some rooms it would feel very controversial because we live in a society where the highest values are things like self-expression and self-promotion and self-actualization and self-realization, self, 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 promote yourself, platform yourself, put yourself out there. And yet in the scriptures, the way I see it is that the kingdom of God teaches values like self-denial and self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness and dying to self so that Christ can live in us. I know it's not popular. Whether you believe it or not, no one actually likes what I just said. No one is actually excited about that idea. But can we at least agree that just because we don't like something doesn't mean it's not true, right? I don't like the fact that the only way to be healthy is to eat less and exercise more. But I've learned for 43 years, it's still true. It's still painfully true true. And so Jesus will return to his own for his own. It's all his. Okay. The second thing that we learn in this uh, parable is that, and this is confrontational, that Jesus will return for those who are awake. He's returning for those who are awake. Um, Jesus does not speak about the future so that his followers will know exactly what will happen. Um, What Jesus is doing is he's providing a sobering picture of his return 
so that his followers, and this is one of the ways the commentary said it, I'm going to quote them exactly, may practice prayerful discernment, prayerful discernment, prayerful knowing what to do, discernment, in which trust in God and faithfulness to God are paramount. That there's nothing more important in our lives than trusting in God and being faithful to God. And the result of all of this is Jesus is trying to give us instructions on how we can live godly lives now. So Jesus' primary interest in Mark 13 is not to give us lots of insight and details about what it will be like on that day, but how we should live our lives on this day, today. And what he's looking for us to do is to be faithful in the work that he's called us to do and not to be caught up in things that are distracting, secondary, and trivial. If the servants in this parable spend all of their energy and time debating, when do you think the master's returning? When do you think the master's returning? If they spend all of their time doing that, you know what they wouldn't be doing? The work that he entrusted them to do. And the same is true of us. If we spend all of our energies and all of our emotions debating higher theological truths in the timeline of Revelation, but we miss the point of how should we live our lives now, then we're not as awake as we think we are. You know, uh, Jesus tells a couple different versions of this parable, and one of them is in Matthew's 20, Matthew 25. And in that version of the parable, the master leaves each of the servants' talents to use. Maybe you've heard this one. The first servant gets five talents, the second one gets two, and the last one gets one. And the master says, I'm going on a journey. I want you to invest. And so... The one who has five uh, wisely invests his talents and gets five more. And so when the master returns, he says, you left me with five, but now I have 10 for you. And the one with two says, you gave me two, but now I have four for you. And the one who had one said, well, I didn't do anything with mine. There's two really interesting things that we learned from this story. The first one is this. The person who was given five and returned 10 and the person who was given two and returned four received the exact same reward from the master. He said the identical thing to both of them. What does that mean? It means you're not responsible for other people's talents. <laughs> That's good news for some of us. Because sometimes people feel like that person's got eight talents. Well, they're responsible for those talents. Take your two talents and do what you can with them to glorify God. But you're not going to answer for what God has given someone else. You're going to answer for what God has given you. So they, they get there, but the person who has the one who, who won't do anything with it, we don't really know what, what this person's deal is, whether they feel insecure, whether they're upset that they only got one, where they feel like they don't matter, but whatever it is, they're held accountable for their lack of stewardship and faithfulness to use their gifts. Alert and awake means using our gifts. Being awake to who God is. A.W. Tozer said this, or wrote this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It reveals so much about what we believe. And nearly everyone is claiming to understand who God is. Uh, obviously, I'm even doing that this morning. What God thinks about certain matters, how God feels about certain issues. And by the way, God never happens to disagree with me. Have you ever noticed that? Um, where do we, how do we know who God is, what he really cares about, what he really thinks about things? And one of the surest ways to know is to be in his word as God reveals himself in scripture. The best Bible study question you can ask yourself whenever you're reading the Bible is simply this. What does this passage reveal about the character and nature of God? If you start with that question, you're already on the right path. 
What does this passage reveal? But being awake to who God is, trusting on the Spirit, in the Spirit, to help us when we open up the Scriptures, relying on the community of saints who have gone before us and who are with us, so that when we open Scripture, we can make sense of it. But also, how are you being awake to God beyond church on Sundays and beyond your spiritual disciplines and devotions? What is your God awareness like throughout the day when you're in Target, uh, when you're at Wegmans, when you're in your workplace, when you're at your school, when you're walking through your neighborhood? Is there an awake to God, an awareness. Are you positioning yourself to say, God, uh, if there's something you're speaking to my heart, if there's something you want me to do, if there's a way that you want me to live and to act, if there's a choice you want me to make, I want to live my life awake to you, awake to God. Also, awake to who we are. Last week, or I think it was two weeks ago, my daughters and Aaron and I went to Red Chili, which is our favorite Chinese restaurant on Erie Boulevard, and as typical, I ordered too much food, so we had leftovers, and so it's strategic. It's strategic because I like to eat the leftovers later, and so they brought us boxes, and they were loading it up, and um, I said to one of my daughters, hey, just, I handed her one of the boxes. I said, just bring this to the car when, we're, when we get ready to go. I paid the bill. We get up, and we go, and we're walking out of the restaurant, and uh, a waiter comes running behind us. He's like, excuse me, excuse me, and had the box of food. You forgot your food. And I, I said, oh, thank you so much. I took it. I handed it to my daughter. I was like, really? <laughs> like, you had one job. Like, remember the food. You know how much this matters to me. Like, remember the food. And, like, I'm kind of, I don't think I was a jerk, but I was kind of, like, just giving her a hard time because she struggles with, like, just basic responsibility at times. And, uh, and we're loading Maddie, getting her out of her wheelchair and loading her wheelchair into the car. And the waiter comes out again. And he's like, sir, sir, your credit card. We don't see ourselves very well. <laughs> the Lord has a way. Here's my question. Who's helping you see yourself? Who helps you see yourself? And can they be honest with you? Are they willing to be honest with you, even if it risks comfort? Even if it risks relationship? If you surround yourself with people who agree with you on everything and support your every life decision and come to your side in every single disagreement, you may have friends more, or you may have fans more than you have friends. Because friends speak the truth in love. And a truth that is increasingly hard to navigate in our world today is that friends can disagree and still love one another. And you and I have actually very little chance of being awake. When Jesus returns, if we remove from our lives every single voice that challenges us and confronts us. Be careful. I think this is important. Be careful that in your efforts to insulate yourself uh, from voices that you don't agree with, that you don't accidentally isolate yourself uh, from voices that you still need to hear. And this is true whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. We need to see ourselves, and we can't do it on our own. And then we also have to be awake to our times. In 1 Chronicles 12, 32, we learn about the men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what they were supposed to do. So I'm going to ask Antonia uh, and Amy to join me up here. here. Here's what's obvious, and this is why I think this is confrontational when it says that Jesus is returning for those awake. A line has been drawn. You're either awake or you're not awake. And Jesus draws the line. Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, in his justice and in his grace... He decides who is awake and who is not. And what this means, and this is why it confronts us, is that there is actually a standard outside of ourselves that we're not in control of. And we may not like that, but we actually need it. 
we, we can't actually make our way through life without some sense of right and wrong. And some people will say, well, that is actually the problem with Christianity is that you have moral standards and it's wrong for you to have moral standards. You hear it though, right? It's a moral judgment that's saying moral judgments shouldn't exist. It's wrong for you to have moral standards. The point being this, everybody has standards. The question is, where are you getting your standards from? Are they reliable? Are they grounded in truth? And if there's no outside standard that we look to, then it just becomes what philosophers call the grand says who, which means this. Somebody says, I don't think that's right. And then you just say back to them, says who? Well, I don't think you should do that. Well, says who? It's a danger of postmodernism and sort of being post-truth is that everything is just kind of like your truth, your truth, your truth, says who? And yet Jesus, when he returns, there's a line drawn. There's those who are awake and those who are not awake. This past Friday in our Bible reading plan as a church, we were reading a passage, and I was reminded of a quote from Pastor Tim Keller who said this, if there's no final judge and if there's no higher standard of justice, then what hope is there for this world? In other words, if there's no standard of right and wrong, then who can stop anyone from doing anything? What hope is there for this world? But if there is a final judge and a standard of justice, then what hope is there for me? (laughs) And what hope is there for you? And this brings us to our last point, which I hope is comforting. And it's this, that Jesus will return and remain forever. When he returns, he's not leaving again. When he returns, he's coming to remain forever. Jesus emphasizes many times in Mark 13 that the catastrophic events that he's describing, whether it's the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem or whether it's the end of the world, the catastrophic events should not dishearten his followers. Why? Because when Jesus returns, he's not coming like he came the first time. He's not coming like a baby in the manger. He's coming as a king. And when he comes, he's going to come as an authoritative judge looking for his watchful servants those who are doing his work his way in a way that honors him and and advances his kingdom. So he's coming as an authoritative judge. That's tough news for you and I because we don't always get it right. But here's the good news. He's not just coming as the authoritative judge. He's also coming as the final ultimate redeemer. That he, the judge, is actually also our advocate. That's the beauty of Jesus. The one who could judge us actually speaks for us and stood in our place and actually hung in our place on a cross. And at the cross, Jesus was the just and the justifier, which means that he was perfectly just, perfectly righteous, but also he became the justifier of all who have sinned, you and I, because at the cross, the mercy and the justice of God collided. Jesus took the justice, we get the mercy. The verdict that should have been ours went to Jesus so that we can have the verdict that belongs to him. He took our sins so that we could be declared innocent and righteous so that when Jesus returns, you will not just experience him as a judge, but you will experience him as a redeemer. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will remain forever. When Jesus returns, it's to remain, to reign, and to rule. And all who belong to him will reign and rule with him. And what it will mean is he kept his promise. His word endured forever. I'll finish with this. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, Paul's talking about the return of Christ, and he says this, encourage one another with these words. That's actually not how the Christian church has always used this topic. 
we've used the end of the world and the return of Christ as uh, to scare each other <laughs> into serving God or to manipulate other people into doing certain things or to debate and argue with each other and prove how smart we are and what sort of insight God has given us. And, and Paul's like, no, you've missed the point. This is to encourage one another. Now, let me ask you this. When's the last time when you, in your struggles, and we all have our struggles, when's the last time in the midst of your struggles you, you were able to encourage your own heart thinking about the return of Jesus? Just saying to your own heart, man, this is hard. This is really hard. But the faithful one is returning. The rightful king is coming. When's the last time that you encouraged a Christian friend with that truth? as you came alongside them in their struggles, instead of just counseling them and listening, which is all important, also being able to say, hey, let me remind you, we know how this ends. Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he's gonna remain and he's gonna reign and he's gonna rule. And here's what I believe, and it's not to make light of where you're at today or where I'm at today. On that day, we're gonna look back at all the things and we're gonna say, wow, that, that stole my joy. That robbed me of years of meaningful relationships. That kept me from community. That little thing in the light of eternity. And so when Jesus tells this story, he's trying to help us. He's trying to say, live now like you're gonna live then. Free and serving God the way that you wish you always had. And there's grace for it in Christ. Let's pray together.